The Arts Explanatory Comma Podcast, where art meets the real world and both sides get a better understanding of the whole picture. This podcast may contain strong language and listener discretion is advised. So Danny, we'd be remiss to not ask you about the Ghana exhibit. Um, I know we mentioned it earlier, and we got really excited and said we'd come back to it. But last year, you curated an exhibit in Ghana. And can you tell us more about the exhibit itself and how the opportunity came about? Yeah. Uh, Excuse me, just a second. All right. Excuse me. So I would love to talk about that. Um, But this is is really great because I've been giving you, like, the trajectory of my academic life and what's been going on and... um, so, in art history, a degree, I graduated while I was abroad. So, I finished my my um, my BFA while I was actually abroad. And I get the note <clears throat> telling me that I have been approved and I won the very prestigious, very competitive award of the Fulbright. So, what I applied for the Fulbright uh, for my scholarship, my grant was to continue. The, the application was about me continuing a research project that I started in Ghana when I went on that trip that my father convinced me to go on. And <clears throat> that particular study abroad required that we did an inter, in, uh, independent study project, what they call an ISP, an independent study project. So I had to leave the group and live in a town in Ghana for 30 or 40 days by myself mm. um, and research something. And while I was there uh, in Ghana, when I was still with the group um, of students who were from all over the United States, different universities, <clears throat> um, while I was with them, we were touring the Ashanti region um, of Ghana in a city called Kumasi. Kumasi is like Chicago and Accra is like New York or Washington, D.C. You know, that's the big city, the capital city. And then Kumasi is like a cultural hotbed in Ghana. Excuse me. And while we were walking through Kumasi, in a little village right outside of Kumasi, I saw a graveyard. And the tour guide told us to be quiet as we walked through the graveyard for respect. So quietly we walked through the graveyard and I couldn't leave the graveyard. Hmm. The tour guide, I mean, the tour had just kind of like walked on, walked on, and I was stuck in the middle of that graveyard. Now, to tell you a little bit about me, I don't play around with graveyards. They scare me. You're not going to see me going to a cemetery in the United States. I don't do that. Uh But in Ghana... I was drawn to them just like I've always been naturally drawn to the image. On the tombstones, they have photographs of the dead Hmm. behind plexiglass. If they don't have a photograph, they have an oil painting or an acrylic painting of the dead on the tombstone. If they don't have an acrylic painting, they have a bust, a sculpture of the dead, of their face on top of the tomb. If it's not that, sometimes they have an animal or a symbol that represents who that person was. So each 
cartoon allowed me to see what the person looked like. So I just looked, I visited grave plot after grave plot looking at people. Now, these people had died Mm -hmm. in probably, they died in maybe as early as the early 20th century. So these, these grave plots weren't very old. But it made me think about what, how we would have been buried, what we would have looked like if the disruption, if the encounter of the middle passage of chattel slavery, of colonialism did not happen. Hmm. If that disruption did not happen. And then I started to think about the idea of graves. And I said, well, it's really nice that all these people are buried here in Africa. But what about all those people who didn't even make it from the boat to land in the new world? And I started researching and I said there was an estimate of three to five million bodies that lie in the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean from the slave trade. Some were thrown over for insurance reasons, mm-hmm. meaning I could throw over a whole, you know, what, a hundred bodies and just say they got sick. And since the bodies were, I paid a hundred dollars a body but they are insured for $300. Yep. I get that extra $200 and then I split the profits with whomever. It's an insurance scam. That happened. Many um, enslaved people made a decision of changing from this earthly realm and transitioning into a spiritual realm on their own by jumping in the water rather than uh, being enslaved in the new world. Um, some people, a lot of people actually did get sick and they had to be thrown overboard. And as I was standing in that Ghanaian cemetery that was so tranquil and so beautiful, I just thought, wow, well, where's the grave for those people? Because those people were these direct descendants. These were their sisters, brothers, cousins, everybody. Maybe they were of a different tribe. Sometimes they were, sometimes they weren't. Um, But these were the people who never got to be memorialized. Um, And my brain started thinking, so I started going from cemetery to cemetery in Ghana. Um, And I ended up in Cape Coast, which is a well-known oceanside town in Ghana where the slave castles are. Yeah. And I started thinking of those slave castles as just enormous tombstones and the whole Atlantic Ocean as a kind of watery grave. And those very abstract ideas, very heady ideas, um, very deep and dark ideas of sadness kind of took over me and um I started writing about just the ways in which Ghanaians buried um, and memorialized the dead in kind of a theoretical way or a symbolic way of me memorializing those lost of the Middle Passage. I couldn't connect it together, though. You know, it was I, I, I just couldn't do that. I was trying to find more of a connection between the people who might be lying in the bottom of the ocean floor 
with these people who have been buried properly. I could have done it, but it takes a lot of theoretical work, and it's still work that I want to do. That's something that actually my PhD hopefully um, will will take on that work. So um, I did the introduction to that type of study as my independent study project. And when it came time for me to apply for the Fulbright, I thought, wow, I get to go back for a year and revisit this idea of memorialization, of the middle passage, of sites of origin, um, and sites of death and remembrance, and just, you know, trying to put it all together. I was looking at the work of Saeed Hartman, who is a cultural theorist, theorist, um, and she wrote a book called Lose Your Mother, which is about her time as a Fulbright student in Ghana. So I thought about, well, maybe I should apply for a Fulbright. And I don't know, it's it's highly competitive. Out of thousands of people applying, very few people get picked. So I, I, I really didn't think I would get picked. But I wrote a convincing and compelling um, grant proposal that basically talked about how I wanted to be reconnected to these people and how I wanted to find a way to memorialize them. And it was all going to be a written type of work, a, a methodology that would look at different texts and also talk to people. Because when I was in Ghana, I met a local person as he was viewing me looking at all the graves. He came up to me and he was speaking to me and he was asking where I was from. And I told him, and he said, oh, you know, you're a lot like the great palm tree. And I said, the great palm tree. And he said, yeah, he said, even though, said something like, even though you've been detached from the tree, you're still a part of it. And he said, you know, we continue to use palm leaves to make things. We weave with them, even though they've been detached from the tree, they still have value. And that's what you are. So there I was in tears. And this old man, told me that and honestly when I was in Ghana old people elders came up to me all the time um, debunking the ideas that Africans are not nice to African Americans and all of that stuff they were so welcoming and they would say do you know that you're from this place do you know you're like us and I'm like yes yes I am and uh, they treated me they privileged me by the way over all of my white counterparts who were with, I was only, there were only two black students with me studying abroad. All the rest of the kids were white students from Yale, um, other great Harvard. We had students from all over. But the, uh, me and this other uh, friend who's a friend of mine, this young lady, uh, we were the only two black students. And we were treated like we were coming home. And it put my, my white friends in a very weird position of not being privileged for the first time. Oh. And it had a very difficult time handling it. Um, that why, why was I called king? Why were they calling me? Why were they just so crazy about me? And I had to tell them, I said, you know, they, they're recognizing something in me. They, they're looking at me as a child who's come home. 
you are an outsider in that mind. And they're not, they don't have to perform in a way for me that they've had to perform for you. Yeah. That they're very used to. So anyway, mm-hmm. after that, all of that, and I wrote the letter to get back to Ghana and I, and I won the scholarship. I came back. I looked up a professor who I was working with, Professor Gilbert Amagache of uh, Kamasi, Kamasi University of Science and Technology. Um, he was retired at the time, but he said he would work with me. And we started putting together like a theoretical uh, work and a framework for the paper that I wanted to write, um, which was really kind of going to be like a start of a dis- dissertation. And he said, you know what? You need to see a formal former art student of mine. He's doing a sculptural installation. And I think it has something to do with what you're looking at. <laughs> yes. So, <laughs> so I had already, he told me the guy's name. It was Kwame Akato Bonfo. And I said, wait a minute. I saw a picture of his on Instagram. And I looked, I said, wait a minute. These are these heads. He has them in the grass somewhere. He said, yeah, they're in front of the Kwame Nkrumah Memorial. Kwame Nkrumah was the first president of liberated Ghana, a revolutionary. He was friends with Dr. King and other, uh, Malcolm X, different, different people, uh, Pan-Africanist. He and Kwame Nkrumah had gone to the university, Lincoln University, which is a HBCU. Um, he had also pledged, uh, uh-oh. I don't want to, is it, oh, is he a Sigma? I don't want to mess that up. Uh, <laughs> I think he's, I think he's, wait a minute, is he a Sigma or is, oh, man, I do not want to mess up what, I mean, what Greek fraternity he plays. I'm not <laughs> going to, I do not want to mess that up. But anyway, um, he has a monument, a um, memorial to him where it's a gorgeous statue of him. And it's in the middle of Accra, the capital city of Ghana. And, on the lawn, 1,100 sculpted heads appeared. <laughs> and I went there to look for Kwame Akato Bafo. And he was waiting for me and because uh, my professor had connected us. And we're walking through these sculptures. I'm looking at their faces, faces of terror, faces, faces of astonishment, of shock, of fear of pain, of just all kinds of emotions on these sculpted heads out of concrete from the neck up. And they're all placed on the lawn facing Kwame Nkrumah. And I said, what is this about? I said, why do I feel like I'm in the middle of the middle passage? And he said, oh, that's what this is. And I said, what? He said, yeah, I wanted to do something that honored enslaved people who were taken from here. Because Kwame Nkrumah's statue is all about freedom. And I've always wondered, what about these people? What about these ancestors Hmm. who we don't talk about? As Africans, we don't like to talk about it because it's such a dark and shameful part of our past. Some of the complicitness that that, that, that many tribesmen had within the slave trade, um, it's become a place of great sensitivity and shame and no one talks about it and he said I'm an mm. artist who talks about it and I've been ostracized for talking about it wow. so this is my gallery space this lawn and I've made over the last 
five to seven years, almost 1,300 sculpted heads out of concrete. Wow. Concrete. And we instantly became brothers. <laughs> and we walked through his whole kind of makeshift exhibition. It was a formal exhibition, but he didn't have like a catalog. He didn't have, um, you know, there was no wall to describe to people what, you know, they were seeing. So all these people were coming by and taking selfies with the heads. And, and he was okay with that because he wanted people to engage with art. He wanted it to be public art. He wanted people to be afraid, not to be afraid to touch it. You could touch these heads. They were made of concrete. They could be outside in the rain, in the humidity. Nothing bothered them. Yeah. And uh, I was telling him about my project of the graves. And he definitely understood how what he did connected to that. So he started pointing me in different directions of different texts to collect for my paper. And one day, because we met up about three or four times, had lunch together. He, he became my friend, beautiful guy, just the nicest guy you'll ever meet. Very deeply intellectual. Um, and just there's a heaviness, there's a severity to his line of thinking. Um, a very serious young man. And I went home to my apartment and I woke up at three in the morning. <laughs> I don't wake up for nothing, by the way. Once I'm down, I don't wake up. I get eight hours every day. Yeah, I, <laughs> and I woke up at 3 a.m. with a voice in my head. And the voice said, you know you got to curate that show, right? And I was like, huh? And he was like, this show belongs in the castles. And wow. Kwame told me that he wanted to a long time ago put the show in the camp the castles, but it was expensive. You have to transport across from Cape Coast is about three and a half hours and you have to transport a thousand art objects with care and it's incredibly expensive and you have to do a proper exhibition and all of that. And honestly, I heard the voice of God say, you are going to curate this show. And I said, but I don't have any money. <laughs> it's important. This is expensive. And yeah. He said, you'll get it. So I went to Kwame the next day. I had to see him. I said, I got to see you. And we met at a burger place. And I said, listen, God told me I got to curate this show. So I guess I got to curate a show. <laughs> and he was like, are you kidding me? I said, I don't know how we're going to do it. I don't have any money. He said, but I just wanted somebody to say that they were going to help me like this. He said, I believe everything is going to work the way it's supposed to work. He said, but I needed somebody from the diaspora to connect with me with this. Hmm. And I started to go fund me. And the U.S. Embassy, I sent a proposal to them and to uh, some other major funders. I did a fundraiser at a private kind of nightclub place. And I did all, and I, I also partnered with the African American Network. Association, rather, of Ghana, oh, wow. um, and who meets at the former home of W.E.B. Du Bois, which was in Ghana. So I was standing in all these sites of remembrance and history and collecting money. And for some reason, the people of Ghana really took to me, and I took to them. Like, um, 
I don't know what happened, but there was a great connection with me and the people of Ghana. So people were helping me find money, raise money, giving me money. You know, Ghana is still considered a developing country when you compare it to something like the U.S. So giving for situations like this isn't always as easy for um, people for people as it is as pe- for people in the United States. But people in Ghana gave yeah. to support this. And then I got a lot of money through the GoFundMe. My Instagram uh, supporters came through, and the U.S. government came through with everything else I needed. Wow. And we were going to put on this, this exhibition, and I came up with the title, In Memorial, Portraits of the Middle Passage in Situ. So in situ means in the place, in situation, if you want to think of it that way. Yeah. The place of origin, where you found it. Hmm. Um, and that's the last place these people would have been standing on African soil, was within these dungeons. So we curated the show. We had, again, about 11 to 1,200 heads. So we put all of the male heads in the male dungeon and all of the female heads in the female dungeon. Hmm. So we separated them. And we had to do the sorting process process and some of the heads he did were kind of androgynous because a 14 year old boy or a 13 year old girl sometimes they look just alike you don't know which is what yeah Mm -hmm. so we had he sculpted them that way he sculpted these faces off of real people using composite images meaning he would take three or four photos of people and kind of create a face from the idea of what these people look like. Yeah. He wanted very realistic, non-ideal African faces. You know, a lot of times when you see African art, it's this muscled-up man with this sculpted face of absolute beauty holding this woman of just... He, he, he wanted these people to look realistic, everyday people in yeah. the moment. So... Yeah. Some of their hair is coming undone. So you'll see braids where someone had maybe braided half of their head, but maybe they got snatched in the middle of them doing their hair. Maybe someone was cooking dinner. Maybe someone was making love. We don't know what happened (laughs) at the moment. We don't. And he seemed to capture these expressions that were right in the moment of being captured. So as we are sorting through the heads, we had to kind of pick and choose which head went in the one what what uh, dungeon, almost the way a slave master would sort out which one he wants to go here and which one he wants to go there. So there was a perform performativity involved in it. <laughs> so in all of these sites, <clears throat> we had these these heads photographed by some photographers. One is Emanuela, and the other one was me. <clears throat> so it's a one man and one woman who are our photographers. And they photographed every time we installed them someplace, they made photographs. So we, we, we installed them in a Brazilian prison first. Um, because the Brazilian prison, even though it was a prison, many of those people who were in prison got sent out to Brazil as slaves. Yeah. So we put the heads, a selection of heads in the prison and took photos there. We took all the photos that of them in front of Kwame Nkrumah and we created like closed exhibitions that were just for us and took photos of it. So when we went to the main exhibition site of the 
Cape Coast slave castle, but a Cape Coast castle enslaved dungeons, we were able to do a photo exhibition as well as place all the concrete heads mm-hmm. in the dungeon. There's a place called Palaver Hall where it, it became a mess hall, a place where people eat. But it was also a place where slaves were auctioned off even before they got to the New World. So if Mr. Reynolds ordered five to ten slaves from the United States, they kind of branded them and separated them, separated them already while in dungeons in the castle. So when they when the merchandise came to the U.S., it was already sorted. Or when it came to England, you know, oh, different places, uh, you know, didn't all go to the, the to the U- United States or to the Americas. Some of it went up, you know, back up to Europe. So it was extremely emotionally heavy, and. Even the heads that probably weigh about seven pounds each, seven to eight pounds, started to feel like 30 pounds as I would move them. Um, and uh, we collected them and took them all the way to Cape Coast and installed the show. And we had a three-hour, seemed like a three-hour uh, opening performance where we performed a, uh, performed a dirge. And a dirge is a kind of sacred, religious, ceremonial um, ritual that you do to honor the dead. It's a song, and we did one um, that was about slavery. And then I sang um, a song, uh, and which was an American, African American spiritual. So we had that concept, um, that context from the point of view of the African American returning. We had dancers, we had poets, um, because in Africa, or at least in West Africa. Um, art wasn't separated like a painter and a sculptor always engaged with the dramatist and with the the dancer um, with the writer all and with the song, with the singer you know, and with the musician so we had drummers, we had musicians we had an orchestra it was a full on production and at the end of the day the deputy ambassador came up to me a white American male of the same name I have. His name is Dan. And he came up to me with tears in his eyes. And he said, because uh, I thought he was going to be mad because I spent a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> I was nervous. And he, said, he came up to me and I said, well, Dan, did you like it? And he said, you did the Lord's work today. And he walked away. Shit. <laughs> it left wow. me to think about the, the gravity of what he said um, and yeah we, they did a tribute to I mean there was and it wasn't an all Christian um, ceremony there was there was a Haitian uh, woman um, who oh my goodness oh my goodness she would kill me if I can't believe I'm losing her name she was from the United States um, oh my gosh! Well, she choreographed a tribute to the patron saint of the Middle Passage, so it kind of dealt with Vodun and Voodoo and Yoruba, and um, mm. they did it with the dance theater group, uh, National Dance Theater of Ghana, 
Um, and they put together this fantastic um, presentation of uh, the god, the goddess of the Middle Passage, blessing the children to arrive safe, safely to the new world. It was just incredible. Um, there was not a dry eye in the house, um, including my own. But I've never been so exhausted. The next day was Father's Day, and mm. I was at the hotel. And I was doing tours the next day because students from all over the world um, came to the exhibition. I mean, Colin Kaepernick came a couple of days after the opening. Lance Gross came a month later. Amanda Seals came. Um, Many different black celebrities from the United States came to the castle. And I think they were really surprised to see this art installation that really activated the castle, because the castle has this reputation of being very sanitized. But when you see a thousand one hundred heads placed all throughout the dungeons, it really gives you the, a, a good idea of what was happening. You can't avoid slavery. You can't avoid the face of slavery. You can't avoid the bodies, the stench that you smell in the air already in those dungeons becomes even more pungent. Um, You can even hear things. It becomes a very, very, very spiritual out-of-body experience to the point where I couldn't even go back in the dungeons to see the art exhibition anymore. After I installed it, I was done looking at the exhibition. Hmm. Um, There was a tour group of students from Nigeria who came over to Ghana and they went down <coughs> they were grade school kids and I led them to the dungeon I told them to go down there with their teacher and once you come back out I will talk to them about what they saw I couldn't bring myself to go down there anymore and uh, the next day was Father's Day and I was sitting in my hotel room exhausted like everything had been taken away from me and oh god I haven't really even told anyone this story (laughs) except for my cousin on my dad's side my first cousin flew all the way from Chicago to the opening of the exhibition which was amazing to be a part of it that is amazing and that morning I woke up on Father's Day in my beautiful hotel room and I just heard my father's voice laughing he would do this laugh whenever I did something good like if I brought home a good grade or something, and he was just like, ha, that's my boy. Ha, ha. And I heard that laugh hmm. and him saying, that's my boy. And I, I, I just stayed in that room that day with the presence. My cousin had called me because she was in her hotel room. She said, you missed breakfast and everything. I said, yeah, I think I had a visitation um, from the spirit of my dad. And, you know, I'm, that's kind of weird for me. I'm I'm not a person who talks about those things or even thinks about those things. Yeah. So it when it happened, it just happened. Um and um I said, yeah, I really felt like, you know, your uncle, my dad, um showed up and she was like, Wow. She said, Well, you know today's Father's Day. And I said, Oh man, I totally forgot. Because I was in Ghana, I just wasn't even thinking about it. Yeah. So I feel like the work I did honored 
so much of the work that my father put into me, into my siblings, into a marriage of 45, 46 years mm. until he passed away. Um, and when I look at pictures of my dad, and when I show people pictures of my dad, uh, both of my parents are African-American, but when I show people <laughs> pictures of my parents in Ghana, they're like, oh, your dad is Ghanaian and your mother's white. I'm like, no, my mother's just light skinned. <laughs> and my dad was African American, but when I, they're like, no, your dad is from Ghana. Yeah. And they would look at him. And I'm like, well, maybe so. Maybe that's where my father's people like originally come from, you yeah. know? But that's why I kind of, I'm not into doing the DNA test. And I'm going to tell you, tell you why is because I feel like a company wants to charge me. $200 to tell me that I'm 3% this, 4% that, 5% this, 6% that. When my very place, my very being here, was a capitalistic economic endeavor on uh -oh. their behalf, and you want me to pay back into it, just to say you fucked my lineage up. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So you want me to pay to say, I come from the, I know where I'm from. And, I, and if I have to go to every country to pick up a little piece of culture from it, I have that right. Yeah. So I feel just at home in North Africa, just at home in South Africa, in Central Africa, because there's a connective thread that goes through the entire place hmm. that I think all of us have the right to experience by virtue of who we are. And how we came to be. Yeah. And I don't need Ancestry.com to tell me anything about that. Man, <laughs> listen. Um, That's my thing. And I, and I want to say, I don't, I'm not dogging anybody. I'm not judging anyone who does that. I understand the desire to want to know. This is just for me personally. I'm good. Listen. Um, I don't know uh, what the physiological response to listening to all of that was for Raquel, but I'm gonna tell you, man, goosebumps. <laughs> like like real talk, I man. Feel like, like I've dominated you all so no, 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 Danny, no. please don't feel that way. Hell <laughs> I, no, man. Listen, I feel like I feel like and and I'm I promise you, I'm not saying this just to say it. Both my parents are preachers and I have had some uh I have had some, some, some otherworldly experiences. Right. Um, but I feel like as you were telling that story, like I, I could feel ancestors. I could feel even when you started talking about your dad's laugh, like I can imagine that laugh, even though I've never heard it. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. I could, I could feel that. like me. <laughs> yeah. I, I can imagine, man, but I mean, I, Listen, I don't know your parents. Never met them in my life. But I want to thank them. Yes. <laughs> because I, I I honestly feel like I feel like everything that they put into you was for a very specific reason that you are living out right now. And I hope that you get to do more speaking. I know you did the panel in South Africa. Um, yeah. I know you did that. I know you, you've done other, you know, speaking engagements and things like that. You've been writing, but like, 
I think I think you're saying a lot of things that need to be heard, that need to be yeah. reiterated. Um, uh, that feels on so, so many cool. levels. Um, and I like don't please, uh, and I'm gonna go back to this. Please don't ever, 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 ever feel guilty for the privileges that your parents provided for you because they're important. They're not just important to you. My wife likes to say this all the time. You know, like people are put in certain positions for a very specific reason. Right. Like and I would hate for you to discount how important your work is. Thank you. Because you understand what others are going through. Yes. But what you what you're doing, what you've been able to do, thanks to your parents, is important for the next generation. Hell, it's important. It's important for me. It's important for Raquel. Like, you know what I'm saying? And it's, it's, I mean, and as I speak, like, the more and more I talk about stuff, it's the more and more I learn myself, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My father always, and this is something my dad, both of my parents taught me something, and I believe in this. He said, you know, people always have to feel like they have to relate to somebody to understand what they're going through. He said, you don't have to go through what somebody else goes through. Mm -hmm. To empathize with them. Nope. Put yourself in that situation. Think about it. You're human. They're human. And that's why. So this is a really good thing. So we talked about like the art that I'm interested in. I talked about portraiture. Yeah. And what Kwame Akata Bonfo did. He, he made these amazing portraits out of concrete sculptures. Grueling work for over seven years. And how he got also. He. If you don't realize, he made the sculptures that have been virally going around on social media that are in the Montgomery Lynching Museum, the Legacy Museum. Yeah. So that's the same artist. Oh, okay. Uh, oh, well. So once he yeah. did that with me, while we were actually doing that exhibition, he got a call um, from the people at the Legacy Museum. And he's like, man, they want me to do these sculptures. And I'm like, there you go. So... Um, his work is here in the United States. Unfortunately, he hasn't been able to come to the United States yet, but I'm hoping he'll get here. But back to the whole point of portraiture, Kwame, what he did when he made these portraits and people looked at them, these sculptures, and we put some in the exhibition hall with the photos. So they're on pedestals. Yeah. And those are the ones that got broken. So mm. along the way from moving them to different places, some of the sculptures got broken because concrete can endure a lot, but it can't endure everything. Some people just didn't make it. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) we had, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I see what you did there. Yeah. Yeah. So the ones that were fragmented, we collected them all because I got an attachment to some of the, um, the heads, like the, some of them I liked, because I worked around them so much, I like liked certain ones, and some of them had a personality to them, had an yeah. aura. Yeah. And when I saw that some of my favorite ones got broken in the transport, <laughs> I was like, "What are we going to?" I'm like, "Oh, that was my guy right there. He had that funny. I liked that one." So, <laughs> so we came up with the idea of displaying them broken in yeah. a memorial room. Yeah. So. We had a soundtrack, a, a soundscape in that room, in that former auction hall that had all the photos and also had all these heads 
on pedestals. Some of them were broken. And over some of the heads was a fishing net. As if we had excavated these heads from the bottom of the sea to put them up temporarily for a time for us to honor them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I saw Ghanaian students of age six all the way up to 18 walk through that exhibition hall and look at the art and just become transformed. This one little boy, there's a picture of this boy. He won't stop looking at one of them. He just kept going back to it. And it's and then I saw non-black people, non-African people experiencing this exhibition and becoming very transfixed, just frozen in front of some of these. And I realized why. It's because Kwame imbued these sculptures with a sense of horror, shock, pain, separation, trauma, all of it. You can feel. But none of those things have to be black to know. So you don't have to be black to experience fear, pain, trauma, shame, um, shock. So when you look at a sculpture and it's expressing all the expressing all of those things to you in its in its, in its expression <laughs> the race of the sculpture kind of diminishes after a while and all you see is another human in pain yeah so you stop looking at slavery as this abstract thing that was far away that happened to these people and you start looking at this is something that happened to us all of us, these were humans. These weren't animals. These weren't objects. So you hear a lot of people use the phrase, the black body, the black body. And of course, they're talking about all of blackness. But, but these, these renderings isolate the head from the body. Because the human brain is what separates us from the animals. More so than anything else our emotions, our intelligence. So these weren't just laborers that got traded into slavery. These were future doctors. Yeah. These were teachers, preachers. Yeah. These were artisans. These were millions of minds and bodies. So it's important for us to look at a portrait because you look at the mind behind the person. Sometimes we get, as people of, color, people of color, we're so sexualized. We're so idealized at times and objectified and exotified that we don't even think about the mind of the person. Yeah. But when you cut the head off and all you have to look at, I didn't have pecs or breasts or thighs or biceps to look at. All I could look at was the face of a person in anguish. And there's when I look at humanity. Yeah. Because everybody doesn't have a perfect body. But everybody has humanity. And that's what an expression allows you to see. So that's why I'm endeared to portraiture. And I'm endeared to looking at, I I, want to sort of see representations of blackness through the interior of what goes on in a black mind. And that comes out in a representation of a face. Yeah. Along with the body. 
So that's why that form of art is of most interest to me. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to apologize for our, our lack of silence. I'm really processing and I feel, feel like I'm not doing my job, but I'm just no, asking so everything. <laughs> no, um, I have a question, Danny. Do you collect art? Um, very little. Um, so here's the thing. The art I deal with can be pretty, you know, I don't know if I want to wake up to the middle passage every day in my house. Yeah. Um, or I don't want to, if I want to wake up to these heavy, heavy esoteric, um, concepts that I love in art <laughs> and it's, you know what I mean? So yeah. I really love art being displayed in public places. Okay. Which is why I feel museums, museums and other institutions are important. They don't need to uh, be destroyed. They just need to be reformed and they need to be changed and they need to, to adapt. And, and they have to include diversity on so many different levels so everyone can, can, can see representations of themselves and see representations of other people instead of just one thing. So for my home, though, um, I... The art I collect, somebody with uh, a true art collector would just be really upset at me because I tend to put up art pieces that go along with my interior design scheme. <laughs> so it's not heavy or intellectual at all um, uh, in my personal home. However, um, I have this desire to to actually start buying art, to actually start like a Legacy Brothers collection where I would actually create a, a structure to have them always um, viewed. Um, something like what Swiss Beats is doing with the Dean Collection. Um, Pamela Jorner out of uh, San Francisco. She's another one who has an amazing art collection. Uh, oh, or, or Peggy Cooper. Uh, 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 oh, God. I'm getting the last. Is it Caprice? Uh, who just passed away, um, Washington, D.C., who was an avid collector. And now that she's passed away, she's sending all of her collection to major institutions. I would love to leave that legacy behind. Um, but our collecting is very expensive. Yes. Um, but it doesn't have to be. I will say, so I'm being modest. I have about five to ten pieces that are not out that are in um, safekeeping that have been given to me by very important artists. And okay. they've given me their work. Hmm. Um, and I'm storing it for one day to be able to show the world rather than say, oh, come into my house and look at what I got. I'm not interested in that. Yeah, I'm interested in what, look at what I can give you. Look what you can experience and what everyone can do publicly. That's what I'm interested in. Okay. Man, uh, hmm. you you you've given us so much, so much, and I don't, and, yeah, I do not I'm need that. Trips to Chicago happening. Yeah. Just Danny, you have a I, I've oh, them flights, them flights, on be, you. them flights be cheap. That's what I'm saying. Do you have a pullout couch or air mattress? Like, let I mean, me know. We'll make it work. Because uh, listen, I cook, man. We'll so make it work. don't worry. That don't I will, work. I will pay in food. I cook. Okay. Oh, hey. Like, Mark is an excellent cook. I will say that. That is the place to say. I cook. No, you know what I'm saying? No, absolutely. No, no. I'm, I'm always <laughs> welcome. I got. I have a big place. Um, and if you come, I'll even pull out some of the art pieces I have. But I do have them. 
and like in hiding. I uh, mainly because I'm trying to like res- preserve them all and um, yeah. and truly collect. And I'm hoping that one day that I can really economically collect. But what's really been great, and this has happened because of Legacy Brothers. Again, one of those things I didn't expect to happen is I've gotten relationships with artists, people who I've read about, people who I've written about, um, became people who I shook hands and hugged and hung out with and who I've been able to do some types of collaborations with. And some people have given me artwork. So um, I think that's something I really need to publicly start doing is soliciting artwork from artists as a gift and kind of reassuring them that it's not a gift for me, but it's for a future um, viewing, a future yeah. place, a future institution where yeah. people can see their work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I saw you got to hang out with uh, Kajal Baines, man, and that dude. Kajal, that's dope, my boy. Yo. I, man. Yo, I, I came across his work back in like on Tumblr when he was doing those, those kind of juxtaposed portraits. Yeah. Uh, of um African Western culture. And yes. those are those were amazing. But like he's gone to this height now that's just man. like I don't even Mark, know what to say for it, man. Because now I gotta talk about, I gotta say <laughs> something. So let's talk about some artists, okay, while I'm on the phone, right? <laughs> yeah. Please. And I don't I don't have favorites, right? Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> There's some people who who I've who you see me who you see me post repeatedly yeah. on my page. Everyone should know that I have a major affinity and art crush on the work of Lynette Yodam um, Boache. Um, she's the the British Canadian artist who's. You go to my page, even in the highlights, you'll see her work. Solange was inspired by a lot of her work for the "Don't Touch My Hair" video. Um, She's an amazing artist. And then, of course, I love Titus Kafar. So Titus Kafar, who just won the MacArthur um, Genius Award, I did a presentation on Titus Kafar's work for my senior thesis in um, undergrad. And my, my, one of my mentors, not the mentor who I mentioned, but another one told me I shouldn't do one about him. Hmm. And she said, no one's heard of him. I don't, she basically disagreed with his art. And I said, no, I'm going to, I'm going to do it about this guy. And four years later, here he is being honored with the MacArthur. He is with his work at the Smithsonian. I knew it then. And I also, I was, I'm very happy that I went ahead and stuck to my guns because that same paper I presented as a senior thesis, I ended up um, representing it in South Africa on the work of, um, on Titus Kafar. And I got to meet him in uh, just a couple, of, just a month ago. I'm sorry, uh, he was here in August. Yeah, um, I got to meet Titus Kafar and told him I've been researching his work. So uh, those who don't know who he is, take a look at his work. He just received the Genius Award um, through MacArthur Foundation, which is a six hundred twenty-five thousand dollar award. It's a hell of an award. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, Titus. But I'm, I'm one now going to Kajal. So Kajal's work, Kajal. I've been posting his work for about four years and all of it's been incredible. And he's so kind and he's so warm. Um, I slid into his DMs just to say, <laughs> Hey, and he, he thanked me for po- posting his work. So we've had this wonderful friendship throughout the DMs. 
And when I went to, when I told him I was going to Morocco, he gave me like a list of places to go. He took out incredible amount of time and wrote me this epic email yeah. about what I should do in Morocco, where I should go, who I should connect with. Yeah. And cause he has spent time in Morocco and it has influenced his art. And he really helped me navigate my way through Morocco. And I got to experience, um, so much of a sub-Saharan identity within the North African region, which had been there for centuries through to through Kajal's kind of telling me where to go to look yeah. into Ganawa music and other things. So Kajal's just kind of worldly, intellectually astute scholar of the art. And he also reaches back and helps out people like me. So I have so much love for him. I'm saying all yeah. that to say I met him in New York for the first time I met him. When I was in New York in September, I was writing for a gallery exhibition and they, they flew me in, which was really good. Um, and I got to meet him at uh, Toyin's um, opening. Toyin's so dope. Why you mention Toyin? Toyin's so dope. Oh, God, that's enough. That's one of that, <laughs> my favorites, right? I can go in all day. Uh, Simone, I mean, there's so many. Nina, I mean, there's just too many people. But I'm gonna, so I'm going to keep it on Kajal. So I met Kajal then. <laughs> and first of all, so I'm going into the Jack Shaman, right, to see Toyin's work. Yeah. It took me 20 minutes to get through the door. Because all these people who knew me from Instagram had bum rushed me. <laughs> and they were like, oh my, hey, and I'm like, and I was, and honestly, I still think I have a hundred followers, right? <laughs> so people were coming up to me like, oh my God, you're here in New York. And I'm like, oh, hi. It was shocking in the most humbling situation. I'm like, wow, these, and then artists who came up to me and knew me, it was amazing. And then I see my boy Kajal and it was like, I was seeing a longtime friend and I'm saying all that to say I had never really got to see his work in person. Man. So, last couple of weekends, a weekend or so ago, he was at, actually I did see some of his work in South Africa, but I didn't really get to engage with it too much. Yeah. I take that back. But it was a different series than what he's working on now. His work was showing at the Art Expo here in Chicago. Yeah. So, I have to admit, some days I get jaded in art because I see a lot of it. I don't know how many images of art I see a day. It's well into the hundreds now. Every day, I see tons of art. So it takes a lot to blow my mind right now. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I get jaded and I get tired. So I was walking around that, that Expo Chicago and I was like, man, I'm so tired of some of this. That's derivative of this guy. This other artist did that 10 years ago. Nothing's original. Nothing's new. Nothing's fresh. And I turn around and the heavens open <laughs> and shine a light on Kajal's work. And I said, wait. And I knew it was his work. Because I know his touch on the canvas anywhere. Yeah. And I ran to it. And I stood there. And I just, I literally almost teared up. I could not believe the scale of his work, the detail, the amount of cultural work that he has to do in the access. He's accessing memories that are not available to most people. And in order to do that, you have to do what I said earlier. You have to put yourself in the place of people's shoes that you may not have walked in. Yeah. 
And he's done that. He's been all over the world and he's taken what he's experienced and he's put it in his art practice. And I think he's one of the most incredible living artists that we have today. He's amazing. And I beg anybody to take a look at his work. It has to be viewed in person. Digital was wonderful. Yeah. But when I saw that stuff, those two paintings at the Art Expo Chicago, they were just mind-blowing. I sent him a note like while I was there. I'm like, yo, I'm at the Expo, and yours was the best piece I've seen all day. Man, like <laughs> my, my story is not nearly as incredible as that. It's very short. I interned at the Source magazine in 2011, and after having seen his work online for a couple of years, I was like, "Man, listen, I'm about to bring some like real culture to the Source magazine because the Source is all hip hop, right? Like that's it." So I was like, "Let me, let me, let me try to bring something else in here, right? Like, because I, I felt like it was a good fusion because." You know, right. Maasai warriors with, with boom boxes with biggie quotes on their right. t-shirts. Like, that was dope to me. So I was like, alright, cool. Let me, let me try to do this. So I, I put a couple pieces up on the site and, uh, wrote a little bit. Nothing, nothing crazy. Probably like 500 words, you know? And I, I contacted him and I was like, hey, do I have your blessing to go ahead and put this up? And he was like, oh my God. It's amazing that you would even think to do that. How did you come across my work? Like, and it was just like this really cool, like, oh yeah, man, I saw you work on Tumblr. Oh, word, man, that's dope. Like, like he, it just, it was as warm as an email could be. You know what I'm saying? Like, he is a very humble, kind guy. Yeah. Uh, that I can't wait to hang out some more with him. Unfortunately, when I was in New York, I was there for work, so I didn't get a chance to yeah. hang out with him. But I'm looking to do, like, I really want to put myself, like, on a circuit, like, where I spend time in regions. Yeah. And maybe do some speaking, maybe do, definitely do some um, studio visits and interviewing. Yeah. And just kind of meetups, like, hey, y'all, I'm going to be in Houston. Yeah. Um like gather everybody who's interested and let's just sit and talk at a place, you know, yeah. um, I'm hoping to do that in 2019. I have a, my, one of my dear friends is a publicist who's been working with me and we're trying to work on some events where okay. I do just like what you guys said I should do. I should do more speaking. Yeah. Um, please. And just kind of hanging out. I like the exchange. I like, yeah. um, people who show interest and I like to, to teach and learn at the same time. You know, I learn from people every time I, I teach something. So um, that's what I'm looking to do. And I would love to do a studio visit with Kajal. We've, we've talked about it for years. Um, yeah. And uh, I can't wait to do with the mini artists. Um, yeah. That's what the Instagram, I, I mean, Instagram has this problem. Social media is problematic as well as it's a blessing. But I have to say it's been really good to me. Um, it's put me on the level with some people who are really up there in the art world who I've been able to shake hands and hug, embrace and, and get words of advice, get words of encouragement from some leaders that I would not have had that connection with if it wasn't for me just posting little innocent little posts of artwork. I didn't realize there weren't that many people doing it at the time. Yeah. Um, and I didn't realize people were actually being moved by it. They were learning by it. It was an education. Um, I received a letter 
a DM from a woman who told me that um, she recently purchased a piece of art from an artist that she saw on my Instagram page. Oh, that's dope. <laughs> and I'm starting to realize a lot of artists have been selling stuff because I put it on my page, which is yeah. cool. I'm not, I'm not asking for a cut yet. But, <laughs> that's and, right yet I think that's what it's all about though I think um, I, my page at this point has never been monetized yeah. uh, no one can pay me a certain amount of money at this point um, unless I go into that type of business but no one pays me anything to get their stuff posted yeah. uh-huh. it's, it's stuff all that resonates with you yeah. post what I want to post yeah. and I get a ton of and this is something I hope listeners will hear those who have continued with this conversation um, <laughs> <laughs> so long-winded, but I get a lot of um, DMs from artists who say, you know, please post my work, please post my work. And a lot of times I, I post it and a lot of times I don't post it. And it has nothing to do sometimes with, a lot of times it doesn't have anything to do with the quality of work. It's just not organically speaking to me. Yeah. Uh-huh. At that moment. Yeah. So, yeah. I often I'll say, you know, this isn't speaking to me, but why don't you try this page? They post stuff like this, or I send them to other places. But I want everybody to know, just because I didn't post your work doesn't value it any less. I'm one person who is posting my specific taste, my what's moving me, what yeah. what experiences that I bring to viewing. A painting or a sculpture or, or even a performance piece, I'm bringing everything that has been put in me to viewing your work, you know? And then, so maybe it didn't speak to me, but maybe what somebody else brings to that viewing really aligns with it. Yeah. So I just want that message to go out there to other artists who are, um, who are maybe even upset. I've, I've been, you know, some people are mad at me. I get unfollowed and, yeah. Little nasty comments from some <laughs> artists. And I realize now right. the reason why is because some people have been able to sell work because I posted it. But that's I'm not in the business of that. I'm not a promoter yeah. and I'm not a uh, gallery and I'm not a um, dealer at this time. Um, so if I post your work, it's because it just really spoke to me. And just because it didn't speak to me doesn't mean it's not going to speak to somebody else. Yeah. And you're an artist, you have to continue to work. And you never know. Maybe this piece didn't speak to me, but maybe the next piece will. I'm just one guy yeah. who's posting what speaks to him. So don't take it to heart. And please, please keep up your practice. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. That, you know, please keep up the practice. That's okay. That That's all they need to hear. That's all they need to hear. That's all they need to hear. Keep going. So keep going. we have two more questions for you. Oh my God. Okay. I'm just two, just two. So okay. one I think is a very important one. And that is what do you want your legacy to be? When you are written into the history books, just like Greenberg and other critics oh and curators <laughs> and things like that, what do you want your legacy to be? You know, I spend half of my day thinking about that question <laughs> all the time, to be honest, because when I see the name Legacy Brothers, it kind of, you know, exactly first <laughs> that kind of thought. Um, I think 
I want people to know what my desire was. Yeah. And I think I stated that earlier, um, that I want black people to, to really love themselves. Yeah. And if anything I do, if it's as little as saying hello to somebody I meet on the street or it's as it's, it's big as writing a, a seminal book that can be used in, in courses. Um, so when somebody like me comes to a university, there'll be more choices to look at that talk about this type of art. Yes. Um, whatever it is, I hope the bigger message, the overarching message is um, everything I do, I want it to be a, a reminder, a love note uh, that people need to remind themselves to love themselves because I really feel the more and more we, we love it ourselves, the more and more empowered, the more unified, the more strong, the, the more healed, the more collective we will be. Um, and the more knowledgeable of ourselves we'll yeah. be. Yeah. So I don't know which one comes first, the knowledge of yourself or the love, but I think they're, they're, they're linked. Absolutely. So if I can put out knowledge and because of that knowledge, someone has a better love for themselves and then returns it and be having a better love for, for the people within their community, um, who, who they represent. I think, well, then uh, who, who could, I couldn't ask for any more than that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Nope. Um, I, I co-signed that for you. Uh, <laughs> um, now for those who are living under a rock, can you please tell us where you can be found on the web? How people you know, can keep up with you? Sure. It's, it's one, it's two places, um, on Instagram. I need to develop a, a website because if Instagram crashes tomorrow, I'm kind of doomed. <laughs> uh, but Legacy Brothers is my main site. It's where I do most of my, my cultural work. Um, people can email me at legacy, legacy, B-R-O-S, um, at gmail.com. Also, the Instagram is at legacy, B-R-O-S, legacy bros, for short for legacy brothers. And then my labor of love project is my granddaddy's closet. It's spelled all the way out, my granddaddy's closet, which is a archive of vintage imagery that celebrates, um, the style, the swagger, the, the sartorial elegance of black men globally and how, how that, that the sartorial elegance actually gets performed in different ways. And you can see it. So different topics come to the fore, such as gender, sexuality, romance, economics, class, employment education, all of those things get played out often in the way a person dresses. So um, it's another form of art history um, with the art of presentation. So I like to study how black men all over the world, it's not just African Americans, I try to include images from 
uh, the continent at large, as well as um, images from the Caribbean and from South America. So that's my other labor of love, yeah. love, with hoping to be more tangible than just saying I want people to love themselves. I'm hoping to create a book out of that. I'm hoping to um, then further on. So I'm in the process of starting some graduate programs. I'm being a bit secretive until I've absolutely gotten in. Um, As you should. Thank you. That's that's starting. Um, And um, uh, yeah, so I think um, if I can just be known as, you know, a historian who actually who actually taught folks. So anyway, the question was, where can I be found? (laughs) My granddaddy's closet um, at my granddaddy's closet and most importantly at Legacy Brothers that's spelled Legacy B-R-O-S. That's Legacy B-R-O-S. And if you search Danny Dunson, you'll find me. All right, man. Um, I just want to let you know uh, that through this conversation, we have become friends. Uh, yes. You're, no, you're, you're invited. I've been talking about all this DM in between. Uh, me and Kajal, me and you go way. Yeah, back. no, but I'm saying though, like we real friends now. Like you can come to Thanksgiving. <laughs> my wife, my wife, look, we got the guest room. Uh, Thanksgiving, my wife is gonna make jerk turkey. If you never, had, you know what I'm saying? Like uh, it's gonna uh, be uh, deli- come through. You know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> I mean, that's the wonderful thing. Like I remember when, like I think when I first met you, this was before you even were married. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and you know, with you and your your son, and just seeing people's journeys, you know, I don't take any of these encounters for granted. So I really do mean it when I tell people I don't have followers; I have friends. Yeah, and they probably say, "Then why don't you follow me back?" I'm like, "There's some friends I don't follow." So (laughs) you got to curate. You got to curate what you want your life to be. If you hit me up on the DM or send me an email. Um, or try to reach out to me. I really try my best to to engage with everybody who I meet. I don't meet strangers, and I just find it. Uh, I'm, I just, I just think it's such an honor. You know, no one has to be nice to you. No one has to be respectful. Yeah. And when people come to me that way, I'm just so I'm, I'm just filled with so much warmth and love, and um, I really appreciate. It. I want to say thank you to everybody who has followed me along this journey. Um, and maybe they'll understand why I'm always coming on with a video of gratitude or saying something because, you know, art history saved my life. Hmm. Uh-huh. I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, and it came in a nick in time when like this, my source of inspiration and a pillar in my family, the patriarch of my family um, was slipping away. He endowed me with a chance to, to, make something of myself in a very critical way, in a way that would give to me and give to other people just the way he lived his life. Um, so that's why I try. I'm always smiling and I'm always talking to different people and I'm always going back to that source of our ancestry, our, our blackness, because I feel like we could never stop talking about that. We can never forget that. So it always goes back to that answer. Yeah. So um, I want to say thanks to everybody for for just being a part of this journey and uh, watching me and cheering me on and supporting me. Y'all have even given money for projects, um, all of it. So thanks so much. And Danny, I I feel like I should take the moment to say 
14 year old Raquel was sitting in APR history. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm intrigued, but I'm not interested. I needed this conversation. This has been one of the most rewarding and comforting conversations I have oh. had. Oh, thank and you. so thank you. Yeah, <laughs> for real. I told, when, when Mark came, he said, oh, I want to interview you. You know, I was just like, yeah, who wants to talk to me? Like, <laughs> no, this has been, so, <laughs> thank you, Mark. <laughs> thank you, Mark, for, I mean, I'm totally, and people think it's a put on, like, I just think of myself as that kid who, you know, who was maybe bullied in school or who was completely unsure of himself. And, you know, my life just kind of still stayed in that place no matter how old I got. Yeah. Um, and it, I feel like I'm just now able to leave that place and kind of grow up and mature. And I'm growing up with colleagues and friends and partners and people who are looking at what I'm doing and collaborating with me like you all have today. And I, I can't thank you both enough for, for allowing me to, to share your platform with you. Again, congratulations so much. And I hope you'll invite me back. I promise I won't talk what? so long. What do you mean? I had to get Yes. When we when we come to Chicago, we're gonna record in in the space. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah let's have for sure. For sure. And and you what you talking about? Just tell us when you want to come back home, man. Like <laughs> you, you have carte blanche. There are a few people that have carte blanche, and that's just because you know we we there there's a there's a certain kinship there, and I think that's important to recognize, man. And I I I, I didn't want to interrupt too much and tell you how much uh, things kind of parallel uh between the both of us uh well we'll be talking but we, we'll yeah exactly, exactly some more yeah so you know we're all connected for a reason so absolutely uh, and you know with that said we we going to uh wrap up this odyssey this 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 uh <laughs> it's probably two part episode of our explanatory comp. Oh, it's a two part episode. It's a two yeah. part episode. We had almost three hours. But rightfully uh, so. Absolutely. Oh um, this is probably the longest one you guys have done. Oh, it is. It is. Oh my it is. Absolutely. But you with that said, man. Five parts. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. If we're good with that. It's, we are good with that. Don't worry. But <laughs> We want to, we just want to thank you again. And on behalf, on behalf of us, on behalf of our listeners, thank you, thank you, thank you. And with all that said, for all our listeners, thank y'all for listening. We hope that you enjoyed. We, we know you did because we did. I'm just going to speak to y'all. Like we know you did. Um, but we thank y'all for listening. We thank y'all for the support. So on behalf of myself and Raquel Simone. <laughs> <laughs> we thank y'all and peace. Bye.